Hey, I want to get right to it today. I want to begin with a thought bomb, and it goes like this. Some people say the problem with Christianity is that it's not taught in schools. I say the problem with Christianity is that it's not taught in churches. We are called to follow the mission of Jesus, to follow the person of Christ. And he said, we're looking at this series that we're calling Disciple, what it really means to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, he gave a a mandate, a mission. He said, go, y'all know this, don't you? He said, go and make disciples. He didn't say go and make fake Christians. He didn't say go and make nominal Christians. He didn't go, he didn't say go and make convenient Christians. He didn't really even say go and make Christians. He said, go and make disciples. And I contend with you that the mission is so great, the mandate so inspiring that casting nets and catching fish and building bigger barns to store grain and collecting taxes and building a reputation and uh, trying to gain approval from others and seeking safety and security in life. All of these things from the ancient followers, the first disciples to you and I today, all of these things uh, cannot compare to the greatness and the inspiration of this mission. I point it out to you often. You know anyone, I'm plagiarizing from Jesus himself, you know people by their fruit. I sat with a dad this week and he was wondering if his daughter should date this dude. And we began to talk about what we knew about this dude and his people and where he came from. And he was wanting to, like, he, it, it's the fruit of this person's life, right? And we know people uh, by their fruit. Look at the legacy of Jesus and what a penniless carpenter spoke to a small Jewish sect 2,000 plus years ago. It has launched more hospitals, more... But not just the legacy of the church, the church itself, the global church, but I think of our little church, little bitty scrappy Fondren church. Here's one person saying, because of you, And I'm saying to you today, what I heard I'm passing on to you because of you, because we pray, because we give, because we show up, because we make investment, because we serve, because we're a body of believers, the bride of Christ. We're a small part of following Jesus. And someone is saying, I'm here today, I'm alive today because of this church. Oh, the legacy of the church. What is as what is it has inspired? How it has spread? What it has launched? It is amazing. This mandate, this great commission of go, but despite its legacy, church after church, institution after institution, maybe that's the problem, gets lost and loses its way. Lifeway research, Gallup poll suggests that because of the virus, because of political division, because of problems that we're experiencing today, that there's a strong likelihood, it'll be slow over time, but the next year or two, that 30% of American churches will close their doors. So churches, no local body, not even Fondren, is exempt from failure, exempt from finishing, exempt from not continuing on, not spreading and inspiring and enriching, but the church itself marches forward 2,000 years later it's not only spreading it's growing today I'm not sure if you know that but globally the church is growing but so many can get lost you know the feeling of being lost do you ever get lost think of the the ways that you and I can get lost you ever go into the kitchen and you see someone in the kitchen and you went in the kitchen for an express purpose like you got you got that intentional walk that gate that says I'm going here to get something you get in the kitchen and you don't know what you went in there to get that ever happened to you And so you grab a bottle of water to save face 
Or you ever been in a conversation and someone says something that triggers, not like an angry trigger. Some of y'all are just triggered. But somebody's talking and it triggers a thought in you and you, and you, you say something like, oh, uh, yeah, I, uh, that reminds me. I, um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, when you were saying that, it, it made me think of, uh, and, that, and you get lost. You get lost in your conversation. Listen, being lost in the kitchen, being lost in conversation is one thing. But being lost in life. Being lost with your purpose, forgetting what really matters is a whole nother thing. So I want to ask you today, we don't say it often at Fonder Church, I want you to turn to Revelation. If you're not a Bible person, I saw some of your faces, if you're not a Bible person, just go to the back. We were in Second Peter not long ago, a couple of weeks when we began this series, and now we're going to be in Revelation over the next few weeks. Now, some of y'all want me to preach on some eschatology. I've gotten a lot of emails from you about end times. What do these events of the world mean? Oh, pastor, it's got to be close. It's got to be in. The end has got to be near. What about this? What about that? We will at, uh, at some point. But uh, I want us today to talk about letters to lost churches. There were seven letters written to seven churches. Don't worry, we won't tackle them today. We're really just going to hit on one because I think it's this church at Laodicea is like America. Let's not put the passage up yet. We'll get there in just a moment. But uh, I want you to think for a minute about your lostness, about churches being lost, about how you and I can get lost and we can lose our way and we become forgetful. But think for a moment about, because uh, being lost is a negative thing. Think about letters. Think about words. Think about the weight of words. Is there somebody in your life, their words carry a lot of weight? When Susan and I, some of you know this story, but we met one summer in Colorado, and we had a couple of months where we dated, if you will, and it was a whole lot of flirting, of stalking, Christian stalking. And we sat down in a beautiful night, and I told her, I want to see where this thing can go. We were both on planes the next day, and some of you know this geographically. We couldn't be further apart. Uh, she was going to her home in Southern California. I was going to my place in South Florida. That's uh, thousands of miles in between us. And I told her, I, I, I mustered up the courage to say, I want to see where this thing can go. And this was back in 1995 when there were cell phones, but they weren't as portable and adoptable and affordable. They didn't have the calling plans or features. Very few people had them. So we, we had landline phones. We would call each other and talk for hours. Our relationship happened because we got on big airplanes and we wrote little letters to each other. And early on, and you got to know, hey, Colorado was great, but she was going back to her place. You know, they have boys in California. I was going back to my place. There are girls in South Florida. We got into our own habits and routines. We went back, great summer, but what about now? Where was this thing going to go? And early on in one of the letters, y'all, we wrote tons of handwritten letters to each other. And one of those early, early letters that I wrote to her just simply said this, I think about you all day, every day. I hope you feel the same way. Woo! Yeah. And that thing landed, man. I'm talking about it. It's like. And it was a good thing. She knew. She knew my heart, and it, was, it landed. Here's what we would do. My letters to her and her letters to me. Now, we didn't admit it so much at the time, but later, after the fact, and in sermons like this, I tell her and I tell people, man, I read her letters over and over again. I read them, and I reread them, and I parsed them for meaning. What does she mean? I had a great time. 
Does she think I'm great? Does she want more time? What does she mean? I can't wait to meet your family. Does she want to be part of my family forever? What does she mean by this? What does this mean? And we would read and reread because someone loved you. And those words of hers carried so much meaning. Those love letters were so lovely. Today, it's still true. After 24 years of marriage, her words carry so much weight. Hey, RG, good sermon today. I love to hear that. If you tell me, that's fine. But when she tells me, there's something there. Sometimes she'll tell me on a Sunday afternoon after my nap, hey, that was, that was all right. You got, we got next week. You can get back up and give it a shot. And sometimes she doesn't say anything. And I just kind of hang around her just... Just, just waiting to hear her words because the weight of her words matter. And when you love someone and you know that you're loved by them, what they say matters. So when we read Revelation, all of it in its allegory and fascination and confusion and mystery, it is a letter from our Savior, from our Creator. And specifically, what I want us to focus on today is letters to, a, to lost churches. There's seven of them, as I said, but we're going to focus on Laodicea. So now the passage, Revelation chapter 3, we'll read 14 to 22 from the ESV. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to ointment your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This is a love letter, a love letter with some hard truth to it. Laodicea, in the mountainous region of the Oropolis, on one side there were streams of water that flowed in, and it was hot mineral water that uh, allegedly, reportedly, was good for you. The hot spring water had healing properties. I don't think anything's changed today, right? Have you gone to Hot Springs, Arkansas, or the Ozarks, or you go to Sonoma, or the wine country, or somewhere in Italy, and you go to some uh, picturesque place, and there's hot mineral springs, and uh, rich people pay money to put cucumbers on their eyes, and to drink the water, and to, to, to bathe in it, and it purportedly brings healing. And that's what they had. They had some of that in this region, but they also had in, in the Northwest area, uh, Colossae. You've read Colossians. We preached it last year. The, that area had snow and mountainous. It was beautiful, uh, alpine beauty. And the, the snow, we, some of us experienced it this week, right? We got out and played in it. Some of us watched it from the window. And then sadly, for many of us, we watched it melt the same day that it came. Now, we wouldn't drink that snow, would we? But this region was able to because it came uh, six-plus months out of the year, and the, part of the water that came into the region of Laodicea would, would be cold, refreshing water from the melted snow. But it would form in places in these what one writer called, one scholar called, stagnant ponds of tepid water. And so it wasn't hot, which brought healing and baths, steam, you know, and it wasn't cold, which brought 
drink and refreshment. It was neither. A stagnant pond of tepid water. Think of it like coffee. Let's just connect this to you today. What's better, right, than a piping hot triple shot of Americano in the morning? Pretty much nothing, right? Except maybe in the afternoon, an ice cold, salty, caramel, fresh, cold foam brew. Right? Now, when it comes to coffee, I like hot coffee and I like cold coffee. If I go into the bean here in Fondren and on the counter is a cup of coffee that's been sitting there all day, it's at room temperature. I don't want it. Give me something hot. Give me something hot. Give me something cold. I bet you're the same way. If something's been on the counter, you don't want it. It's coffee at room temperature. Raise your hand if you want coffee at room temperature. Nobody. It's what? It's, it's lukewarm. And the idea there, if you can see the spiritual analogy, is that the church, if we're not careful, will live at room temperature. We'll look at the environment, and our desire is to be just like the environment, where there's nothing distinctive about our lives, nothing that stands out. Now, we don't seek greatness for ourselves. We point to a God who is great, but we should stand out. There should be something different about us. And this lost church, now these seven letters, you'll see that they were lost in many things. They were lost in what it meant. They were lost in their purpose. They were lost in comfort. They were lost in their riches. Some, one church specifically was lost in legalism. Boy, they were obeying the rules, but there was no love there. They lost the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. That can happen today. But we don't want lukewarmness. And Jesus is saying, in love, he's saying, it makes me want to vomit. If I'm at the bean and I see coffee and I drink the coffee at room temperature, I'm going to want to spit it out. And that's what Christ is saying here to us. So churches, the church, the legacy of the church is it lasts. But so many churches, it, us, if we're not careful, we can get lost. Not a week goes by where I don't talk to someone. It's my job. It's also my passion. But to talk to someone who who's lost, who feels lost, who lost their way, who wanted to go here, but it ended up over here. And so it's a process to talk and to pray together, to see what kind of help they might need to find their way again. And churches can be like that, and you can be like that, and I am not exempt from that. Rodney Stark wrote a book. If you're a note taker, you may jot this down. Rodney Stark wrote a book called the triumph of Christianity. I think it's a historically significant work. And in his book, he gives four reasons he believes. He asked the question, um, he asked the question, how can the church last? How can this mandate, this mission that Jesus gave to go and make disciples over 2,000 years ago, how can it have a penniless carper, carpenter with a tiny Jewish sect, how can it have such impact? And he gives us four ways. I'm going to quickly give them to you. Again, just the research, the thoughts, the insights of one historian of note. He says the first thing is absolute truth. Studying the church and its growth, how it spread, its impact, where it's launched, who it's left a legacy with. He said it's its absolute truth. Does that make anybody nervous? Because you do you, you do your truth, you speak your truth. But what about absolute truth? And so in the middle of this this these churches in the middle of a significant point in history of the church society was crumbling see if this sounds familiar to anybody the family was breaking down there were very confusing views about sexuality uh, these tiny 
this tiny movement of Jesus followers taught a different thing about sexuality. They talked about it being uh, reserved for marriage, about it being about two souls that are bound together in a permanent love. In a greedy society, the government, by the way, was barbaric. There were riots in the streets and a political opinions about those riots. Does it sound familiar? And in the midst of all these philosophies, which seem to be futile and empty for the majority of the people, well, this is true, this is true, this is true with this condition. What about this? Well, dabble in this, try a little bit of this. And in comes these followers of Jesus who had a resurrected Messiah. And into this, they spoke these words that Jesus spoke, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And people, I'm telling you, are hungry for truth. And you know, what the, you, know what the, you know what this virus has done for me? You know what this lockdown and shutdown, and, you know what it's done for me? It's just, it's, it makes me want to be bolder in the truth. It makes me want to tell more people about what they can only find in Christ Jesus. So there's absolute truth. A second thing that Rodney Stark mentions in the triumph of Christianity, he talks about a radical inclusiveness. Absolute truth and a radical inclusiveness. At the time, I don't think we appreciate this like we need to. At the time, the patriarchy was everything. All right, let's just say down with the patriarchy. But there was the, the patriarchy was everything. It was a man's world and a man's religion. And these early followers came along and following after Jesus, they said that women matter and women can lead. Galatians 3.28, there is neither male nor female. We're one in Christ. How clear is that? Anybody confused about that? There is neither male nor female. We are one in Christ. There was an inclusiveness there. Slaves were degraded and exploited. They were used in trafficking. They were used for their economy. And when they got old and useless, they were discarded. Galatians 3, there's neither slave nor free. We are one in Christ Jesus. In fact, these early believers, they lived and walked and hiked and camped and fished and learned and loved with Jesus Christ. And one day, a day they'll never forget. In fact, I can't forget it. Seeing leaders fall, seeing political leaders, seeing church leaders fall, seeing people lose their way. I think about this all the time. John 13, these early followers of Jesus, those intimate disciples, one day they, they'll never forget this. Jesus, in a slave culture, in an exclusive society, Jesus took a basin and a towel and a bucket of water and he knelt down as only a slave would do and he washed their feet. No wonder they would write letters to churches and say, we're slaves of Jesus Christ. He said, you don't even have to call me slaves anymore. You're friends. Hey, we're, slave, we're friends and we're slaves of Jesus Christ because in John 13, Jesus said, what I'm doing, you do that too. Hey, leader, are you leading? Serve. Serve other people. And there's this radical inclusiveness, rich or poor, man, the rich were elevated. You and I can go to places today where there are, there's essentially a caste system and the rich are granted favor. It, no wonder James, the half-brother of Jesus, would write in the second chapter of James, when you worship, show no favoritism. When a rich man comes in in purple linen clothes and gold rings and you say, sit here, and a, 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 a poor man comes in in ragged clothes and you stay, stand back there or sit at my feet, you are not honoring Jesus. And the triumph of Christianity, 
Let us not lose our way today. The triumph of Christianity is the absolute truth, and it's the radical inclusiveness. And I love what Rodney Stark says. I'm going to use my own edit of this, but he talks about they were flexible, but they were solid. You see, religion and philosophy in Rome that day said, wear what we wear, eat what we eat, talk like we talk. There's always inside jargon. If you go to a church and there's a lot of inside jargon, run. Wear what we wear, talk like we talk, eat what we eat, pray, wh- pray what we pray. Fancy language, religious cliches, memorized traditions. And you know what Jesus said about that? But there was a center court in Jesus's day and only the men, of course, could go into the center court. You know what Jesus said? There is no center court. Prayer is talking with God. They were, they were flexible. It gave life because it was, wasn't bound to what takes life from us, but it was solid. The fourth thing that he mentions that helped the triumph of Christianity spread is evident fruit. Consider um, this quote that he mentions in the book, Triumph of Christianity. One historian put it this way. Thousands of little Christ, that's what they were called, found power to overcome, to forsake evil and live different lives and their neighbors saw it. Wait a second. What we're saying today, if you need a title to the sermon, is a disciple is not a lukewarm Christian. Think about this. Think about how Christianity could triumph in our day, how it could spread and flourish with disciples. Now, here's the thing. You can't dictate my life. I can't dictate your life. I've been saying this over and over. Sorry for the ad nauseum. Sorry for the redundancy. But I get you. We get you for an hour a week on Sunday, maybe. And the world gets you every minute. All the ads and all the images and all the social media and all the political punditry and all the people, whatever your news source is. I say this often, but I can, I can tell your I can sit down with you and after five minutes, I can tell your news source if we talk about stuff. And that's who has us. That's who's discipling us. But what if, what if we learn from our Savior? Some say the problem with Christianity is that it's not taught in schools. I say the problem with Christianity is it's not taught in our churches. So for us to follow Jesus and to be his apprentice, to study and learn from him is the way of life. And what if God raised up among us some little Christ who could overcome, who could have the power to overcome, who could forsake evil, who could do good, who could live distinct lives, not lukewarmness, not the cold or the coffee, the lukewarm coffee that's left out at room temperature. But we stood out. There was a distinctive reality about our lives. And thinking of lukewarmness, I did a lot of reading this week and I recollected it, I think it was Friday and I was like, who was that? There was some quote, there was some, and I, re- I was reminded of Francis Chan in the book Crazy Love from um, 12, 13 years ago, and he gives several traits of a lukewarm Christian. I want to give you four that of the eight that he mentions in the book, Crazy Love. He says, uh, a lukewarm, Christ, lukewarm Christians don't want to be saved from their sins. They just want to be saved from the penalty of their sins. Hey, that part of my life, I want to hang on to that. I'm not going to give that to you. Lukewarm Christians don't live by faith. He quotes David Platt, if you're not in a place where you feel desperate for the spirit of God, then you're in no way in on mission with God. I want to ask you today, is your life constructed where you really don't need much faith at all? 
you're, you're going with what you know. It's your rituals and your habits and your routines and what you can control and what's predictive. Are you on mission? Where are you with your money? Where are you with your sexuality? Where are you uh, with, with what it means to follow Jesus? Where are you with the culture today? And are you living on mission? Are you living to build bigger barns and to consume the grain and to stockpile it away? Or are you taking seriously what Jesus says about bringing heaven to earth? Third, lukewarm Christians give God their leftovers. Yes, that's a financial thing. How many of us bring our tithe to the storehouse? Do you? I want to report to you with great joy that in 2020, despite maybe the hardest year we've ever had collectively, it's been our best year financially. How great is that? How great is our God? How great has our God been in the life of our church? For just a second, I say that to report to God's, God's goodness that flows through so many of you. And so I, I don't want you to, I don't want to come across as needy. I tell, I tell you this often. It's not so much what we want from you. It's what we want for you. And to have the joy of seeing God's provision of doing it his way. Saving and investing and getting out of debt and giving and doing that first. God doesn't want your leftovers. And can I tell you, it has been a joy to live my financial life in faith, to go on the adventure of trusting God. Fourthly, lukewarm Christians from Francis Chan, Crazy Love, are moved by stories of people who do radical things for God, yet they do not do radical things themselves. Is Christianity a spectator sport for you? Oh, look at the story here. Look at the heroes. I'm going to read this biography. Oh, look at the great, I'm going to watch this podcast. And we are moved by these stories, but we're just spectating ourselves. The church at Laodicea, to get back to Revelation 3, to give you more about this church, they forgot they were lost in their comfort. I want to give you three things, you note takers, about this church that they had forgotten. In their lostness, the first thing is they forgot they needed help. History clearly tells us there was a massive earthquake in their day. And this earthquake was very large. I'm not sure what Richter scales were like back then, but this was a, it was, a, it was truly a, just a gargantuan earthquake with tremendous devastation. And all the communities in the region, they did what we would call today seeking federal disaster relief. Who would the feds be that day? Not Washington, D.C., of course, but the Roman Empire. And every city, every tiny community or village sought help, disaster relief from the Roman Empire, except Laodicea. They were saying, we're rich and we're good and we don't need help. They forgot that they needed help. Everybody needs help. Everybody needs to be forgiven. Everybody needs to be made whole. Everybody needs to be saved. Everybody needs to be set free. And you won't get it in your brilliance. You won't get it in your competence. You won't get it in what you can do in your own effort and your own flesh. It is you and I crying out in desperation, Spirit of God, I need you. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we need him. Blessed, Jesus would say in a society that elevated the rich, Jesus would say, blessed are the poor he would go on to say in spirit but that got everybody's attention blessed are the poor 
in spirit. The poor in spirit is when you realize you're morally bankrupt. For the poor in spirit is realize that you can't get that from yourself. You have to go outside of yourself for salvation, to be saved, to be forgiven, to be set free. It's gotta be outside of you. I've been reading this week, a Yale professor, very brilliant woman, who's a, a cognitive psychologist and she's been writing quite um, remarkably on self-esteem. And she's writing and saying that self-esteem is now, I'm just telling you, she's saying it's dangerous because self-esteem is tied to yourself and it's tied to your performance. And if your self is tied to your performance, it's gonna fluctuate up and down. And that, my friend, is dangerous. Oh, for you to know the gospel and to know something that's greater than your circumstances because a lot of us are in circumstances that aren't good. A lot of us aren't able to perform like we could. And we need something outside of ourselves. They, the church at Laodicea, they forgot that they needed help. They forgot that they were poor. What's the wealthiest region in America? Anybody know? Now, sometimes the wealthiest neighborhood or the wealthiest city, it varies based on the economy and certain situations and fluctuations. But generally speaking, the wealthiest region of our country is in the San Francisco Bay Area, all around it. Let me ask you, what's the most most depressed region of our country? What is the region where there's more reported cases of anxiety and depression and suicide? It's in the San Francisco Bay region. Uh, You could easily, you could go out there if you haven't, and you could look at the beauty and the scenery and argue that it's as good as it gets. Imagine the wealth and the beauty, but the pain. You see, I'm preaching this today because America is Laodicea. And we need to realize our poverty. We need to seek help. They forgot they needed help. They forgot they were poor. And let's put it this way. Number three, they forgot they can't keep covering things up. In this passage, I don't know if you remember in Revelation 3, it talks about being ashamed of their nakedness. That's spiritual. There's only a few places in America, America is Laodicea, there's only a few places in America, or let me say this, in the world, where a few cities, places that impact fashion. Do y'all know this? I used to be a model before I came into ministry, so I know these places. Paris, Milan, New York, Miami, LA, Pearl, with the outlet malls. These places influence fashion. And those places, except the last one, are really the only places in America that have a lot to say about fashion, about what people wear. Guess where that place was in that day? It was Laodicea. They were the fashion capital of that region of the world. They had a lot to say about how you covered yourself up. And it's easy to think if you're really into fashion, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but if you're really into fashion, the kind of the idea there is I can put stuff on my earthly tent and make myself look better and more appealing and attractive to other people. I can garner attention and acclaim and money if I model. I can look good. I can put on clothing. And he's writing to them with the language that they understand All right, if you're in Milan or Paris and you're on the runway, you would speak to those people in their language. And that's what this letter, this love letter is to those people. Hey, you're ashamed of your nakedness. When Adam and Eve first sinned, they ran, they hid, and they covered. When you sin, the tendency is for you to run and hide and cover. When I sin, you know what's in me? I wanna run, I wanna hide, and I wanna cover up. 
And Jesus, the message of the gospel, this is so freeing, y'all. You know this, everybody's heard this. Even if you're here today and you're an atheist, you've heard this, love covers a multitude of sins. How, how much good news is that? God's love covers our sin. Note takers, write down 1 Peter 2.16. I don't have it up. 1 Peter 2.16 says, live as free people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. See, love won't cover what you cover up. And these rich people, these proud people, these proud, these people that weren't asking for help, that forgot what mattered, they thought, I can cover this. I'm just going to cover this up. Anybody have a deep spiritual problem, a real ache in your life, a hole in your heart, and you've tried to cover it? Numb the pain, pop the pill, escape into pornography and fantasy, take the drug, live a dual lifestyle, sweep it under the rug and act like that it doesn't exist. Love covers a multitude of sin, but love can't cover what you cover up. And everybody has shame related to their nakedness. To follow Jesus is to be a disciple. And one of the things I've learned from Jesus is I need to come to him. Now listen to the great news. Listen to this great news after this. Consider Revelation 3, 19. Let's go back to it because it's easy to forget when you read a bunch of verses. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Is that a hard word or is that a good word? I used to think that was a hard word. Do you like the coach, the teacher, the parent who's hard on you? Do you like somebody to push you? I just wrote a letter to someone to encourage them. And I told this person because I believe in the work that God is doing in their life. And I told them, hey, I'm going to push you a little bit. I'm going to challenge you because I believe in God's work in your life. And when somebody believes in you, they're going to do that. You don't let the star athlete, the brilliant academic person, you don't leave them to do their own thing. You push them because... You want them to exceed the bounds of what even they think they can do. God loves you and I so much. What does it say? It's really clear. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Are you open to receiving a hard word from God? And notice what that can lead to. Don't cover up. I don't know. Who needs to hear this today? Quit covering it up. Let it be known. Confess it to God. Talk to a trusted friend. Don't Air your laundry on the neighborhood clothesline. Don't tell everybody. Don't post it on social media. But talk to your God who loves you. Self-esteem is bankrupt. It's PR, it's marketing, and it's a lie. Even if you're at the top of your game right now and you feel better than other people, it's a lie. One article I read this week from the New York Times, I just alienated some of you politically from the New York Times. Why the path to enlightenment is an ego trip. For centuries, gurus have taught the path to enlightenment involves transcending the self. I won't read it all. Now researchers have spotted a problem. Spiritual practices that are supposed to shrink the ego are more likely to inflate it. Don't leave that up for long, but basically, as soon as you're on the route to, to you know, becoming self-aware and inflating your self-esteem, all of a sudden, you're looking down on other people. All of a sudden, the very thing that you thought would bring you life is taking life from you. So today, be open 
to not inflating your ego and sitting there and saying I'm good and smart enough and doggone it people like me and doing daily affirmations of faith about you. Let God speak into you. It is good news. Listen to me. Let me say this. Conviction is good. Conviction is good because of what it leads to. First of all, you're not numb. You feel something. If you don't feel something, we got a problem. If, you've, if you're numb spiritually, you're not paying attention to what I'm saying now. It may have little to do with how good I'm doing or not doing. It may have something really big to say about you. But a spiritual numbness is not a good thing. But to feel conviction, and I love what it says, it leads to zeal that leads to repentance. Zeal means passion. And here's what I love about this scripture. These letters, the, the allegory, the metaphor is lampstands. In Revelation, it has seven lampstands. And you know what a lampstand is? A lampstand is not a lamp. A lampstand holds the lamp. So you and I can't live our lives thinking we're the lamp. That's so freeing to me. When I get to a place where I realize my marriage is not about me, my parenting, all three of my awesome kids, it's not about me. Leading Fondren Church and all the burdens and joys involved in that, it's not about me. The, the witnessing to my neighbors and friends and being a light in this world, I'm not the lamp that frees me up. I hold the lamp. A lampstand holds the lamp. Be zealous about holding the lamp. If it's about you and holding your light, you can't be zealous for long. So receive his conviction. Receive his reproof and discipline. Review your day. Be willing to repent. Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my thoughts. Know my sin and know my anxious thoughts. Far better than any boost to your self-esteem is to realize how much he loves you and you don't have to perform for that love. You need to lean into that love. Simon Sinek has written a couple of best-selling books as one of the most popular TED Talk speakers. And he says that if you're going to do something, this talk got over 3 million hits a few years back. He said, if you're going to do something, anything worthwhile, the biggest thing is the why. W-H-Y. Why? Why? What is your why? If you're going to start a business, what's the why? If you're going to plant a church, what's the why? If you're going to pursue a relationship, what's the why? If you're going to do something big, know the why. Do you agree with that? I think he's right. Know the why. We had staff all week. Nick Crawford led us. There was charts and graphs and lots of notes. Nick lives for charts and graphs and lots of notes. He was in his element. I was so proud to watch him lead our staff. I think great things are coming out of it because of his leadership and the work that God wants to do in us. Yes, yes, yes. Know your why. Why are we doing this? But let me tell you something. Simon Sinek says every what, every how comes under the why. But let me tell you what's greater than the what and the how and the why. It's the who. It's the who. It's the I am, Revelation 3.20. Don't miss it today because this is, this is love right here. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It is an invitation. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Closing, I want to tell you, a few weeks back, she's not here today and not likely to podcast this message, but my daughter Haley, a freshman in college, she was home for an extended time with her older college senior brother, and the house was full of people. And there was this one moment where we, I didn't know really what was happening for dinner. And it was one of those nights that's a little too typical, but it's like everybody grabs something and kind of do your own thing. And so I grabbed something and I was at our dining room table. It seats 10. We don't have 10, but it seats 10. And I was at the head and I just sat there. I thought, I'm going to eat my dinner. I didn't have a phone, didn't have a tablet, no, no kind of screen. I didn't even have a book. I'm always reading, didn't have a book. I just sat there with dinner. And my daughter, uh, who 
walked through the room. She grabbed something. She was heading back to her room, and she saw her pathetic father just sitting there. And this is really cool. Uh, Dads, you feel me here. But she uh, came and sat, and her word was, oh. And she thought, here's my dad. He's a pastor. He's a raging extrovert. Uh, Mom loves him, but nobody's sitting with him. And it's just pathetic. And so she said, oh, and she sat down with me. And I didn't want to show it because I got my pride. But in my heart, when she said, oh, I said, oh, that's my girl. That's my girl who's at college. That's my girl I didn't get to see enough. That's my girl I cried when I sent her off. That's my girl. And she wanted to sit with me. Sure, it was out of sympathy. But man, that's what I want, huh? And here's what it means to follow Jesus. We, we lose our way because we forget this. Don't forget this. By the way, when, when God says he loves you, and so he repro- he, you get his reproof and discipline so it can lead to zeal and repentance, you know, to be zealous means to be passionate. You know, how many things can you be passionate about? You can challenge me later if you want. Like, I'm passionate about my marriage. I'm passionate about my job. I love my job. I love this church. I give myself for it. I, I, there's a lot of things I love, but I'm really passionate about one person worshiping him and fellowshipping with him, and it flows into everything else. I didn't say I was perfect if anybody interpreted that way, but you can't be passionate about a bunch of things. And some of you have been passionate about a party, about a political candidate, about a football team, and it's been funny to watch you defend, because when, when you're fanatical and passionate and zealous, you defend, the, you defend what maybe shouldn't be defended. Well, Tulsa started the fight, Right? You get blind. I'm just talking about my team, right? They started or this guy, oh, what about, what about your, what about? And you know, you live long enough and you realize, man, this, this, I've been passionate about the wrong things. So today as we close, Lauren, if you can hear me, the team, y'all go ahead and come up. We're gonna sing a couple of songs before we go, but let me just say, here's what matters most. Jesus, Jesus wants to knock on the door of your life And he wants you to open that door to let him in so that he can sit down with you. The invitation for us to not lose our way, to forget that we need help, to forget that we're poor, to forget that we can't clothe ourselves, we can't cover up stuff. I'm telling you, if you're covering up something in love, I tell you, it is so hard and so painful and it's weighing on you. You say, "Uh uh-oh, he knows me. He knows what I did. I don't know you. I don't know what you did. I just know you can't cover things up. If there's any confusion, read Luke 8, 17. Everything that we hide will be revealed. It will be brought out into the light. So when I'm with Jesus and I open the door and let him come in, there's discipline and reproof, there's pain and at times misery, but I sit with him and I worship him and I review my day with him and I let him speak into me. The one who loves me. The one I don't have to perform for. I have a meal with him. In church, we call it communion. And we do it once a month, the final Sunday of every month. But communion is a daily thing. To be a disciple, to go and make disciples at its core, is to not be a lukewarm Christian. It's to have supper with Jesus. To share a meal with him. Would you stand and would you pray with me? God, would you receive these songs of worship? And Father, for those who um, are not zealous or those who have misplaced zeal, for those who need to repent, not just 
change their opinion, but to change their inward reality. Lord, would you convict us? For those in the room who are uh, faking it, whose Christianity is convenient, who occasionally publicly talk about you, but privately no longer commune with you. I pray that you light a fire of conviction and love amongst your people today. And we're not thousands in attendance in person or online, but we're hundreds. And I pray in the midst of the hundreds that you would light up some little Christ who could overcome, who would forsake evil, who would live more distinctively in a world that's not inspired by room temperature, lukewarm, stagnant ponds of tepid water Christians. In you we pray. Amen.